if I look at all the things I'm most proud of with 23andMe, I'm most proud of the fact that we have proven out that the individual is capable of getting their genetic information without the oversight of a healthcare provider. And I think you're never going to have a totally transformative kind of healthcare experience if it's dependent upon a one-to-one interaction with a healthcare provider. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. Today, I'm speaking with Ann Wojcicki, co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. Ann is a true believer in the democratization of healthcare. Under her leadership, 23andMe has empowered more than 12 million people to use their personal genetic information to live healthier lives. But Anne is just getting started. She's got a bold vision for better, more personalized healthcare delivered affordably and accessibly with genetics at its foundation. On today's episode, Anne and I talk about empowering patients to better understand their health history, lessons she's learned in building an innovative company, and how we can achieve a future of personalized healthcare. I'm Mark Harrison, and together we're building a healthier future. Purpose of this conversation really stems from my fascination with people who are changing our thinking about how healthcare is delivered. And I'm particularly fascinated by people who are bold and they're innovative and they're maybe a little impatient. And when I think of all those things, you came right to the front of my mind in all the best possible ways. So, and when we were together up in Idaho last summer, in the middle of all these interesting conversations that were happening, and everyone was really glad to see each other after sort of a COVID hiatus. One of the things that I just loved is that you also were really focused on your youngest kid and making sure that in addition to doing all the business stuff that a founder and CEO of 23andMe does, that you also had time with your daughter. And Can you talk a little bit about you know, how you like to balance out your very aggressive, daring business career with mom of three kids. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I didn't really like when I, when I was pregnant with my first, I didn't expect I would like my children as much as I do. Like I remember always, <laughs> I always remember thinking like, oh, I'll be able to leave my mom. I'll be able to do all these other things. And then I had my children. I was like, it's like the greatest thing. It's the greatest thing ever. And at the same time, 23andMe is absolutely one of my children as well. And in it's, it's hard. It's hard to figure out how you balance it. And I always love when, I, when there's like a new super productive person in the company and then they have a child and they're like, wow, it's like really impinges on your time. I'm like, 100%. Like everything is different when you are balancing kids and work. And I have sort of managed it in the capacity that like you figure out what's really important and I don't have strict boundaries between the two worlds. Yeah. And so for me, in terms of like managing what's important, there's things like I just gave up. Like I am sitting in my closet right now, hiding from my, from the child that you referenced, <laughs> hiding in my closet. And it's always a reminder to me. I'm like, oh my God, there's like all this clothing that I used to wear, but I just decided like, what are the things that are important for me? And, you know, I like never get dressed up. I never go out to dinner. So I kind of try to prioritize, like, what are the things that are really important to me? And how do I get the most out of those? You know, and with my kids, like when I go to work meetings, like it's great to have a balance. Like, and I was really grateful to the conference organizers for saying like, yes, bring your child. And then I can 
you know, have a great meeting and spend an hour then with my daughter and then come back. And, you know, that makes me really happy and it makes my daughter happy. And it's something that I also try to really think about how you manage, like how I manage the company is that you're never going to have a super productive employee if they don't feel happy at home. Well, I just love that. You know, um, we at our house, we talk about work-life integration. Some days mostly are work, some days are mostly play, but most days are a pretty good combination of both. And um, sort of squeeze the play in where you can, squeeze the work in where you can, and then just based on the priorities, you, you morph. Yeah. You know Mary Carol from lunch as well, and she always says every stage is the best stage when it comes to kids. And for us, you know, it's been really fun to watch them go from the age of your daughter all the way up to adults now. And I just wouldn't have wanted to miss any of that. And, you know, work's really important and the companies we run are really important and hope we're doing good in the world, but we're also human beings. And, you know, the idea that you would forego the opportunity to know these children of yours is just, you know, it, it's sad beyond belief. And by the way, we... I gave up ties for the pandemic, so um, you have clothes yeah. you're not wearing, and thank heavens, I, I don't think I'm ever going to put a tie on again as, as long as I live. Never, but you, I find it's like my children, my children every night love to come in my closet and they put on like heels and clothes. I'm like, I just like love that it's like the legacy world, like, oh, this was so, like, imagine this. But no, so, I totally agree. I think that people are, I do think that it's important again. And, and I think about this as when I ever coach other CEOs or like people in, in a position of leadership is making sure that people don't miss the, the, the critical moments in their kids' lives. And I get upset. Like, like I think as a company, for instance, like everyone should, like the first day of kindergarten is never an event to miss. Absolutely. Like people should like those types of things. And it's important for me then also as a leader to role model that. And I do think it's important for um, everyone to recognize that work-life balance and that happiness at home and your children. And that, that's like a really important part of your life and your business is really important. But again, your, 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 your family is with you forever. One, one hopes a hundred percent. So I'm just reading about you. Sounds like you grew up in a really powerful home and with really interesting parents and great siblings. And you know, when you look at your kids, how do you think your upbringing set you up for the kind of success that you've earned? It's, it's been you know hard won, I'm sure. And what are you trying to do for your kids so that they have the kind of self-confidence uh, that, that you have? I think the best thing my parents did for us is we had the opportunity to fail. And, you know, my parents gave us a huge amount of freedom. We made lots of mistakes and they really didn't, I mean, they micromanaged in some ways and really did not. Like there's times where I'm like, mom, I can't believe you. <laughs> I can't believe you gave us like all that freedom. Or like there's times in high school, I'm like, I did you ever cook dinner? Like, I think I was totally on my own, you know, for a good number of, a uh, good percentage of my nights. So I do think independence is really important in learning how to, you know, how to survive, like, and also to how to figure out your passions, like, what are you most interested in? And I think that was the advantage I got from my parents, because I wasn't really pushed in any one direction. I had this opportunity to explore and come up with ideas. And, you know, when I graduated college, and I told my parents, I was just going to take off time, and I just wanted to be a nanny. And they're like, that's great. Like, you know, life is long, like all kinds of things. 
Um, and actually, frankly, it's only because of my parents that uh, my mom had this idea. She's like, oh, you should go and temp, like be a temp for a while. She's like, it's the best thing. Like you can go and get a job in a law office for three weeks and then you're done. Like you can try out every single industry. And it was like um, trying on clothes. It was amazing. I think that, <laughs> that that ability to kind of look at the world is a really exciting place and it's full of opportunities and you don't have to just pick one thing. You can do all kinds of exciting things, but like find the things that you're most excited about. And so I, I do love have, that. Yeah. I, I love that, Anne, because think of the last really successful person you met who was a cynic. That optimism, that sense that the world is a place of opportunity, I think is a really consistent trait of people like you who, who have who have actually had big ideas and followed them through. They believe, you know, I guess intrinsically you need to believe that you can do something. And, uh, you know, the fact that your parents gave you that kind of freedom probably instilled in you the sense that you've got agency, you know, you've got an internal locus control, you can do stuff. So, um, I, I mean, my mom was all about that. You have the opportunity to define the world. And again, my children as, you know, um, you know, they went to Berkeley, they were total hippie children, like obviously believed in the potential of change. But as a kid, it came through in that my mom would say something like, there's a, you know, there was an empty plot of land near me. And she's like, the city should build a park. And she's like, they're not building a park. She's like, I'm going to lobby the city to build a park. And she like went and she put together the proposal, got the playground equipment, like got the budget, built a park. Like my mom was just all about She's an amazing community organizer and activist. I mean, it's part of like, it's gotten her in trouble at times. Like she, she was a real rebel. She was a teacher in the local high school and she led all kinds of protests and marches. And she's, she was controversial, but that's part of what I saw is that there was this opportunity to have an idea and then to make it happen. And overwhelmingly with both my parents, what I saw every day was them just like, create something out of nothing. Like they just made things happen. And okay, so, so we're going to take that in, a, in just a second. Um, Cause I want to hear about how you took your crazy idea with 23 and me and, and, and really made it something But I, I wanted to just touch for a second on this idea that your parents gave you a lot of freedom. This whole right now, it's like the helicopter parent, the tiger mom, you know, whatever these like super intense folks were hovering constantly at our house, we always tried to be, we call it lighthouse parents. So we like say, um, we're going to try and keep you off the rocks. We're going to let you take in some water, but we're hopefully not going to let the boat go down. And um, I think that sense of freedom and risk and that you actually are a person who is capable of managing your own life ends up being a pretty good trait. Sounds like you got a, a really good dose of that growing up. Talk about where the idea for 23andMe came from? Because I know you thought about medical school. I know you studied biology. How did you go from there to where you are right now? You know, again, it goes back to this, the openness of my parents in terms of not being a helicopter and also pushing us to find things that we really loved doing. And so one thing I think that's been unusual about me and my sisters is we've never been afraid of quitting jobs. It's amazing how many people are always af afraid of change. Mm-hmm. And I, there was like something in my mind. It was like, I'm highly, like, I feel I could always get a job. So, you know, my, like I said, I, I finished college and I was a temp and I was a nanny and then sort of totally randomly ended up on Wall Street investing in healthcare companies. I 
honestly just like couldn't believe my luck. I was like, this is the most amazing job ever. Like I'm paid to research healthcare companies and like understand biotech. I was like, I would do this for free. Like it's, it was just so much fun to study the stock markets. Like I just, like it was, it was an amazing job and I loved everything about it. And I spent a decade doing that. And I, to this day, I love investing and I love finding, again, love being on that forefront of companies that are trying to really innovate and create something new. But I started to realize as I looked at the healthcare sector more and more that there was really nothing about the business of healthcare that aligned with my best interests. I, even to this day, I'm reminded all the time that the absence of no one rewards you for creating the absence of a disease. Meaning if you are obese, pre-diabetic, and you get someone to lose weight, to prevent heart disease, prevent diabetes, no one's rewarding you. And I could find all kinds of ways to monetize obesity. And even like all, there's all these Wall Street reports that come out, like how to profit off obesity. Like how do you, like there's even ETFs on obesity. Like how can I just invest in an obesity ETF? You know, the reality is like sickness makes a lot of money. And I found I was spending all my time figuring out how to more efficiently move patient from the patient from point A to point B, but no one was really spending time about how do I just not have the patient to begin with. I mean, this is why I like you so well. You want to use what you've created to do good in the world. You know, at Intermountain, we are super focused on getting paid to keep people well as opposed to just taking care of them when they're sick. And we need more ands and more, more 23 and me's and maybe more Intermountains to do this because you're right. We're churning all this money through that sector of the economy that just shouldn't be there. It should be other places. It should be in education. It should be in infrastructure. It should be in clean energy. It should be in all kinds of other places and we're wasting it. And um, I, I love that you think about how to use your company for good. So many of the things that I learned from the investing days had an influence because I understood how the system traditionally works. And I should also emphasize that I grew up in a healthcare system very similar to Intermountain. And I grew up as a Kaiser Permanente baby. I am a very proud Kaiser Permanente member. And I love my pediatrician to this day, who I still keep in touch with. And I still think as like one of my, like a friend and, and a caregiver, but he really taught me how to take care of myself. How do I notice when I'm sick myself and how can I tell when I'm healthy and how to sort of balance and how to, again, how to, how to take care of myself, which was like an incredible skill. And again, as I invested in healthcare, I found that there was nothing that related to my childhood experience. Like healthcare in New York City was a terrifying experience. And the couple times that I got sick, it was just, it was terrifying. And so as I um, started to understand the system more and more, 23andMe kind of bore out of almost an anger that majority of the healthcare world really doesn't serve people. And I started volunteering in places like San Francisco General and Bellevue in New York. I just was overwhelmed. Like I was a patient advocate and I was overwhelmed, like hearing patient stories. And it was so different from going to a pharmaceutical sales conference and understanding this disconnect. I just was overwhelmed at how much I felt like it was almost like a communist system. Like they didn't realize what Big Brother was doing to them. And so 23andMe kind of came out of a desire to in some ways, disrupt it all. Unlike a lot of startups, it didn't come out with like, oh, here's the reimbursement code that we're going to follow. And this is exactly how we're going to make money. But rather, I came out as an advocacy brand, like similar to what my parents had always taught me, like, 
make a change and also with a moral compass. But the me and the two co-founders, Linda and Paul, were very much about like, we're going to do something that's revolutionary. But the goal here is really to try and empower the individual and um, create a different, a parallel universe world where we're cash pay, we're all about direct access for the consumer, and we're actually going to have all of our incentives aligned with the consumer because we're interacting like directly with them. They are our end customer. I was just going to say, Anne, you know, um, I remember the early days of your company and listening to people. And there were some folks who wanted to dismiss or minimize the impact. And, you know, you'd hear terms like recreational genomic. And I, I really admire how you persevered. You had the big picture in your head. My guess is you ignored them. They may have even fueled your fire just a little bit in terms of driving towards towards your end sure. goal. Did that fire you up, Anne, being underestimated I or dismissed? You know, coming again from sort of a the Stanford academic world where you never know as much as the person sitting on your left or right, you kind of get used to being challenged all the time. Like, you know, my parents were super argumentative, like in a fun way. Like I love those early days of debate about, you know, whether or not a patient should get, you know, should they should they have rights to their genetic information? You know, can people handle this information? Always ki all kinds of questions about privacy. Will people know what the implications are? Do they know what to do with this information? And again, as I really look at myself as a patient advocate, like the primary role of 23andMe is as a patient advocate. Like I represent that the individual, like you are not as incompetent as the entire healthcare system seems to think you are. Like there's so many protective measures in place that are trying to make sure, like you need a physician, you need a healthcare provider to enable a lot of services. Like why I take thyroid meds, like I have to go and get a physician order every time I want to go and draw my blood. Like why? There's all kinds of aspects that are just frankly crazy. And I feel like what we are really meant to do is like to show that the consumer is quite capable. If I look at all the things I'm most proud of with 23andMe, I'm most proud of the fact that we have proven out that the individual is capable of getting their genetic information without the oversight of a healthcare provider. And I think you're never going to have a totally transformative kind of healthcare experience if it's dependent upon a one-to-one -one interaction with a healthcare provider. That's incredibly well said. So let me um, double click on something for a second. So I'm going to take my personal situation right now. So as you know, I've had this go around with multiple myeloma. I'm in a complete remission thanks to CAR-T therapy. Probably about one of 150 people who were part of this trial that has really been seminal. And boy, am I lucky because I was on my last legs. And the approach is going to make gazillions of dollars. It's going to make a ton of money. The question I have is, should the other people who are in the trial, should some of that value trickle back to them? And I'm not talking about me personally, but I, you know, I can imagine somebody without a lot of resources who has volitionally taken part in something that they had no idea if it was going to work or not, in part to help themselves and in part to do human good. And should they in turn um, have some benefit from the upside? And then by extension, you know, if you guys do drug development, should the person whose genetic information helped inform that, should they, in fact, in the long run, uh, benefit from wealth that's created from a new drug, for instance? Ooh, those are a lot of thorny ethical issues. Yeah, no, th none of this is easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I can almost put the question back at you. And, and this is something where we've surveyed a lot of people because we looked at models in those early days should should you pay people for participating in research? 
And, you know, I can ask you, like, you, first, it's, it's very hard to track exactly who, of all the people who contributed, who should be getting money. So let's say I came to you and I said, look, we're creating this drug, but you're going to get some nominal fee. Most of the people I talked to about this with just felt strongly, like, I'm contributing to research, not because I'm looking to get a $100 check. I'm contributing to research because I want you to save my life. Yeah. And, and, and that actually was where I was. I mean, to be honest, Dan, I would have paid to be part of the trial because I, sure. I wanted to keep on living and uh, it didn't look like I was maybe going to. And uh, I felt incredibly grateful to get in. But I think these kind of questions, the fact that you wrestle with them and you actually seriously consider them, I think differentiates you from maybe some other players in this environment. And Probably based well, I, on how you were raised at home. Yeah, I mean, like I, said, I really do see us as a little Robin Hood like. I know how the system works, and I recognize I'm in a position of privilege, and I feel like we have the opportunity to take on more risk to try to do something that's truly transformative. And one thing I have to say, I give kudos to my whole therapeutics team because 23andMe is developing novel therapies. By having genetic insights, we're more likely to be successful. But I think a lot, and the whole team thinks a lot about, is there a better way for us to get those therapies into the hands of the customers who eventually need them? And are there ways? I mean, right now in healthcare, is there's a lot of middlemen. There's a lot of people in healthcare. And that was kind of like my chief takeaway when I left investing, is that there's so many ways to make money off the inefficiencies. It's shocking. And, and it's, again, lots and lots of people make a lot of money because healthcare is so inefficient. And again, one of the things that 23andMe has really been trying to do is establish a direct connection with individuals about their health. So is there a way for us to have more direct access with our customers when they need a therapy? Or are there ways for us to be very clear about pricing? So I think, I think there's a lot of room for innovation, I, and I don't have the specifics of what we will do or what we even can do, because it is also highly regulated, but I just know that there has to be a better way. And again, I think that by coming at it with a um, patient advocacy mindset and you know, really with this goal, like I want to solve the problem, like you participate in a study because you want to be alive. But you want to also have a societal benefit, like everyone should be able to benefit from this. So how is it that we can reward my employees, reward our investors, but also really do good? And I 100% believe that there's an opportunity to do that. Here, here. Do good, do well. Um, So can you talk for a second about your acquisition, uh, Lemonade Health? Yeah. Because, I mean, you're a person with big ideas. And so how how is this going to extend the reach of 23andMe? I mean, what, what can we expect, Dan? Well, I, I, anyways, I love talking to you about this too. Because, you know, when 23andMe started, we originally had this idea that we were going to crowdsource, we'll bring together all these people who want to participate in research and that we'll partner with pharma. And we found over time that it was not the best solution to partner with pharma, but like rather we actually had to have our own therapeutic engine because most of the world was still skeptical about what was going to be that potential of genetics. And I think there's a similar analogy here where we have, we've worked with physicians and chatted with all kinds of groups for a long time about how do we get genetics integrated into primary care. The reality is like we can come up with hundreds of reasons why 23andMe and the genetic information that we are generating does not get integrated into primary care. 
And largely it's financial. Why would I pay for you to learn about a clotting risk factor? It's just cheaper for me to find out if you get a blood clot, if you have that risk factor. Or why would I pay for you to find out if you're a carrier for cystic fibrosis? If you're not pregnant, let me just wait till you're pregnant. What I find again in this mindset is like most of the healthcare world operates based on the fact, based on the idea that individuals are never going to change. Like doctors overwhelmingly are the most pessimistic about people like, ah, you're never going to change your behavior. You smoke and you overweight and you're never going to change. And kind of like, again, how you started the conversation, like I am an incredibly optimistic individual and I absolutely believe that people can change when they're given the right kind of tools. To no fault of the healthcare world, it's really hard. Like you're given eight to 15 minutes with a patient. You're like trying to do all this whole assessment. It's really hard. So part of the reason why we bought, or the main reason why we bought Lemonade is the idea that 23andMe is going to have an opportunity to help the 12 million customers get access to care where they're trained on genetics and they know how to integrate this information into their primary care with a real focus and an angle on prevention. So that if you know you have a genetic risk factor for atrial fibrillation or for macular degeneration, how do I help you best use that information? Are there lifestyle interventions? Are there times you want to go to the doctor earlier? What are the appropriate ways to follow up? So, you know, that's music to my ears as an intermountain person. One of the things I'm fascinated by is the interplay between people's hobbies and their work life and their persona. And you transitioned from being a figure skater to a hockey player. And I think you played varsity hockey at Yale. And you're a, you're a competitive person and an athlete now. So talk a little bit about the how has athletics changed your approach to business? How does it keep you who you are? Uh, you know, I have... Like I played hockey in college, but I've actually always like in some ways, like I'm competitive in different ways other than my athletics. In some ways, like I, uh, and maybe it's me, like I get such an endorphin high from being outside and exercising. Like for me, it's almost more meditative. The number one thing I miss about the pandemic or I miss about the old days is my bike ride to work. I absolutely crave 45 minutes without a phone or without anyone, like in the cold, like the air. I just absolutely miss that routine of like going to work and coming back. So I think there's something about exercise and sports and playing that is just incredible. But I've always found I'm super competitive on projects. Like again, every year you speak about sports, like every year I had to win this skate-a-thon because I had to figure out that's how I got my new skates every year. And I like just crushed it by like a mile. Like I was like, I like, <laughs> like give me a task. I am again, I'll, I'll crush it. So that makes me feel really good to hear you say that. And because I'm a competitive person also, but I always say I can't control who the other person on the starting line is going to be. I can only control how well I perform on that given day. So for me, it's a, actually a, it's a process of self-discovery. And the preparation, the project piece is really a big part of it, right? So that race day is a celebration of all the training that you've you've gone through. And so I, I really, really like that. By the way, you can still ride your bike, not going to work in, and you I can- know. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, my sister and I have, have come to the conclusion that we're getting older and we need sports that do not involve like a lot of joint damage. So we've been, we've picked up badminton, uh, table tennis, and pickleball. You know, and so- I'm- I, 
So many people love pickleball, but it's the stupidest name. I mean, uh, I, it, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, apparently, they were actually revisiting. Like, should they name it something else? But but people and, love it, right? I it is really fun, and we're very competitive in pickleball. Like, and that's where it was. Again, there's something that's so fun about being competitive when it doesn't really matter. So, and you told me a really funny story once. You had just come home from vacation with your kids and I asked how it was and you said you had been camping or like state parks or national parks and your kids just begged for one night in a place where they could take a shower where they didn't have to like put coins in the shower. You are a person who's been very successful. You've worked really hard for it. How are you trying to raise kids with the kind of values your your parents raised you and your sisters with? Is it hard to do? Well, Look, I think that it's true. I remember my roommate, my roommate in college grew up without any money. And she was the most creative person ever. I remember saying something to her at some point. She's like, look, Aunt, you got to be brilliant to figure out how to have a great event with nothing. And I just like, I totally embrace that. I think constraints make everything better. And I have to say, like, it's one of the things when I travel, like one of my favorite things to do is to travel with no plans and you just wing it. And in some ways to suffer a little bit, like the adventure is everything. It was never the trip that went according to plan, right? The story you tell over Thanksgiving dinner is the trip that was totally screwed up and that they're really fun. Yeah, I think like like adventure and not knowing what's coming next is amazing. There's nothing worse than like somebody who like again, every so often it happens where like, oh, we're gonna map out your plans. I'm like, no, like why would you ever take that away from me? And my favorite thing ever, I've driven cross country a couple times, and my favorite thing is like you drive cross country without a map. Or like again, it's not that innovative this day because you have your phones, but like Back in the day when you're like, I'm just going to drive and I'm just going to figure out where I go. We love those kind of adventures, as you know. Okay, so you you had an accolade that I really admire. You were named the most daring CEO, and I, I love that. So talk a little bit about what you think that actually means. Like, wh- Why were you named the most daring CEO? And then I, I know you care about mentoring other people who are leaders. And maybe just one or two quick points of, of advice that you often give folks. You know, what does the most daring CEO tell somebody who's coming up? You know, I look, I think the most daring CEO, I think there's always a lot of headlines out there. But I think that if I had to make assumptions and like be proud, like what am I excited about? Like I like to think where I am a daring CEO because we're really trying to challenge healthcare. And I do sometimes feel like like I'm a tiny fish swimming up to Niagara Falls. And daring is kind of a loaded word. I like to say maybe daring and enduring, like <laughs> persistent. Maybe I'm the most persistent CEO, but we, um, I really do believe in this ability for us to totally transform. So second, in terms of mentoring, what do I do to mentor? I think the most important thing to do in, in some ways is to dedicate your time. And I, I do feel pretty strong about this. Like it's, it's important for everyone to give like the way you mentor is to spend time with them. Like you can't raise children without spending time with them either. And, you know, being helpful to people requires some amount of like genuine time commitment and recognizing like in some ways it's the most important thing to do is first foremost for anyone in a position of leadership is to recognize some percentage of their time, you know, some percentage of your salary goes to philanthropy, some percentage of your time should go to helping others. You know, I do believe strongly that everyone's good at something. 
And I've seen that within the company, people who really don't do well in one area, but just absolutely flourish in another. And I can see it even with myself, like environments where I'm not going to be great. Or Warren Buffett's the classic. He's like, look, if I had been born on a farm in Africa and like there wasn't opportunities for stock markets, I probably wouldn't have done so well. So, you know, I do believe everyone's good at something. And By the way, I think he would have done okay. He would have figured out a way, don't you? He would have figured out something. He would have, for <laughs> sure. But I think that helping people understand that there are lots of opportunities out there and figuring out what those, you know, the right opportunities for them are and, and helping navigate that path. The most important thing you can ever do is to believe in someone. So believing that everyone's great at something is important. And I really you know, like that, Anne. You know, um, I, so I, I'm glad you said nice things about pediatricians. Uh, Mary Carol and I are both pediatricians. Oh, I love and, my Yeah. So I, unfortunately, I was a pediatric ICU doctor. Um, we're not quite as nice as the general pediatricians, but... Yeah. You know, I think one thing that we know is that for a kid to be successful, they pretty much just need one person to love them and believe them. Oh, yeah. And it, it doesn't matter male, female, young, old, related or not related. I mean, there just has to be someone in their life who believes they're really special. And um, I think that's kind of true on the leadership front as well. And I really like the way you present it. And in a lot of ways as leaders, that's kind of what our legacy is. I mean, our, our companies may or may not endure. Hopefully they will uh, and do good. But um, we hopefully turn out a whole lot of people who are going to be switched on like you and, and you know, make some good trouble and, and fight the good fight and make the world a little bit better place. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the favorite things I have is the number of people who have been at 23andMe who've gone on to do really phenomenal things and start companies or be in leadership positions at other companies. But, you know, I think about us as, you know, we're, we're fertile ground for someone to grow and to learn a lot. And they're going to go out, you know, you, you spread the gospel in some ways of, or the, the, our philosophy of like how, how we treat people. And I hope that we are always treating people well, whether they're in the building or out of the building and, um, and we're growing people and, you know, that they walk away with that sense of like, they're worth, they're going to be great at something and, or they are great at something. So I do think that I took, again, I think back on my life, the people who really believed in me and I had some amazing teachers, like my pediatrician for, for one, again, I, he kept in touch all the time. And my, my teachers who would write or encourage, and I just, people can't underestimate how much those things matter. Well, Ann, um, this has been fantastic. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Of course, Mark. It's always good to see you. Pleasure. 